That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. Biden, I think he's done a good job. Look, I called him. I think he before he called me. I'm not very much. Work hand in glove. We have a very different political philosophy. And but he worked hand in glove. And he's been on dealing with this crisis. We've been completely lockstep, but no difference. Okay, so now we got You know, more timber. More homes, more buildings, more police stations, fire stations, etc., have burned to the ground in California, Oregon, Wisconsin, well, excuse me, Oregon, Washington State, Idaho, down into New Mexico and Arizona, then makes up the entire, the entirety of the state of New Jersey to the ground, gone, gone. And so the thing I plead with you to do, and I'm sure you will, we're going to get you all through this. You're going to get because of the grit of all of you. But when you get it done, when you hear it happening somewhere else, remember, this is the United States of America. We're all in this together. Thank you. But it is a disappointment, and it says that there are problems. Are you worried about just one for the American people are going to be taken away. Every kitchen table cost is going to go up, not down. And I realized costs are going up on food. And I was able to bring gasoline down well over $1.60, but it's, it's inching up because of what the Russians and, and the Saudis just did. I'm not finished. Let me start off with two words. Made in America. Made in America. OPEC Plus, and Saudi Arabia in particular, 
have not condemned Putin's war. Russia has never condemned Saudi Arabia's invasion of Yemen. These are just facts. I'm going to close with one more fact. Gas prices move the needle in American elections and democracies on the ballot in 33 days in America. 33 days. If democracy loses in America, what chance does it have in Ukraine or in the Middle East? Who wants democracy to win? Who wants it to lose? Joining me now, Peter Beinart, professor of journalism and political science at the City University of New York. He's an MSNBC political analyst. And Nicholas Kristof, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author, soon to resume his column at the New York Times. Gentlemen, thank you for uh, being with us this evening. Peter, let me just start with you, because we don't know why Mohammed bin Salman or Vladimir Putin or any of these guys got involved in it. I will say as an economic journalist, the price of oil was not in a place that demanded a two, billion, a two million barrel a day cut. It was in the 80s. Uh, so we can only take the facts that we've got and, and try to make sense of them. How do you calculate these, these odds? There may have been more than one motivation, motivation. It may have been that they were genuinely afraid that a recession would push the price of oil down. But as you laid out, it's certainly the case that the Saudis would rather have the Trump-era Republican Party and indeed the Trump family in power than the Biden administration and Democrats. Why is that? Because the Trump administration is easier to buy. The Trump administration and the Saudis have already started to do that. They've made huge investments in Trump's own wallet, in Jared Kushner's wallet. They've also invested big money in Steve Mnuchin's investment fund, the former Treasury Secretary. And they have clear evidence from Trump's first term that virtually nothing they could do would lead him to decide that the United States shouldn't put pressure on Saudi Arabia. So why would they not? And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It's the 8th of October, year of our Lord, 2022. Episode 6, Tree Zero. And there's our bumbling, stumbling, fumbling president. And was that a conspiracy theory from MSDNC? Because I thought you weren't supposed to do conspiracy theories. So today we're going to have a little crime, little trans, little freaking army. We're going to do an army section today. But I really wanted to start, and I only picked out one, and I could play a million. I want us to go do-do-do-do back in time, and we're going to listen to Farik on CNN, Farik, about Trump's foreign policy. And then right after you hear that, you will see what our president just said, and you can see how the media handled it. Three months ago, Donald Trump suddenly withdrew American forces from northern Syria that were in part thwarting Iran's efforts to dominate that country. His rationale was clear. Going into the Middle East is one of the worst decisions ever made in the history of our country. It's like quicksand. Well, last week, he dramatically escalated America's military engagement in the quicksand, ordering a strike on Iran's most important military leader and deploying thousands more troops. How to make sense of this Middle East policy? It actually gets more confusing. Around the same time that he was urgently withdrawing American troops from what he called this long, blood-stained sand, Trump sent 3,000 additional troops to Saudi Arabia. When asked why, he answered that the Saudis were paying good money for this deployment. And just a few weeks after announcing the Syria withdrawal, he reversed himself and left some troops in the north for one reason. We want to keep the oil. All clear now? 
After the killing last week of Qasem Soleimani, Trump warned that were Iran to attack any Americans or American assets, he would retaliate very fast and very hard. And yet, after Iran did attack two Iraqi bases housing American troops, Trump essentially did nothing. Iran appears to be standing down. Now, I'm glad Trump chose to de-escalate, but that doesn't change the fact that he reversed himself yet again. You see, the problem with Trump's foreign policy is not any specific action. The killing of Soleimani could be justified as a way to respond to Iranian provocations. But this move, like so much of Trump's foreign policy, was impulsive, reckless, unplanned, and inconsistent. And as usual, the chief impact is chaos and confusion. Trump did not bother to coordinate with the government of Iraq on whose territory the attack was perpetrated. After the Iraqi government then protested and voiced a desire to have American troops leave Iraq, he belligerently threatened to sanction the country and stay put until it paid the U.S. billions of dollars for an air base. The result? A policy that could well have produced a marked diminution of Iran's power might instead trigger the withdrawal of American forces from Iraq, which has been the chief Iranian objective in the region for years. This is not an isolated instance. Trump began his policy toward North Korea, threatening fire and fury like the world has never seen. He ridiculed its leader Kim Jong-un as rocket man. Soon, he was declaring his unabashed affection for Kim. We fell in love. And making unprecedented concessions by meeting with Kim three times. Trump kept hoping for a deal, and despite every indication that Kim was unwilling, kept up his one-sided love affair, minimizing the North Korean regime's record of almost unsurpassed brutality and terror. Donald Trump does not have a foreign policy. He has a series of impulses, isolationism, unilateralism, bellicosity, some of them completely contradictory. One might surge at any particular moment, triggered usually by Trump's sense that he might look weak or foolish. They're often unleashed without any consultation, and then his yes-men line up to defend him, supporting the president's every move with North Korean-style enthusiasm, no matter how incoherent. The United States has made mistakes in foreign policy. But over the past several decades, it has by and large had a carefully thought-through process of decision-making, involving consultation with allies, and has tried to maintain consistency and coherence in its policy. That hard-won reputation is now being squandered in arena after arena around the globe. We have some breaking news tonight. At a fundraiser in New York this evening, President Biden just made some extraordinary and highly alarming comments about Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine and the threat of nuclear war. Biden said the risk of nuclear Armageddon is at the highest level since 1962. Quote, for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have a direct threat of the use of a nuclear weapon if, in fact, things continue down the path they are going. We haven't faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Joining us now to help parse those comments and understand where we are at is Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor for Pre President Obama. Ben, thanks for joining me tonight. Thanks, Alice. Uh, First, your reaction to uh, President Biden using the word Armageddon and uh, recalling 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
Well, I think that's uh, a shorthand, right? Armageddon is a shorthand for, you know, the potential for nuclear conflagration. The reality here is we do have a threat from Vladimir Putin about the use of a nuclear weapon. The distinction I draw from the Cuban Missile Crisis is that was the U.S. and the Soviet Union, two superpowers in a nuclear standoff where a nuclear exchange could have been Armageddon. What we have here is a threat really of the potential use of a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine uh, that would, would obviously be an uh, awful escalation for the people of Ukraine and a potential risk of the escalation of that conflict. But, uh, you know, I, we're not quite at the level of, uh, again, I think, concern of where things got in the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I think what he's reflecting is this is the first time in a very long time, decades, that we've had to take seriously the possibility that nuclear weapon can be used. And, and that is something that people should be taking very seriously. I would say, Ben, to that end, Biden did talk about tactical nukes and said, I don't think there's any such thing as the ability to easily use a tactical nuclear weapon and not end up with Armageddon. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, or I mean, do you think, I think that... the situation... Go ahead. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, you're, you're, you can parse this. The, the, I think what people should keep in mind is a nuclear weapon that is of the kind that we were talking about in the Cuban Missile Crisis is the kind of weapon that destroys cities, right? Strategic nuclear weapons. A tactical nuclear weapon uh, could be of a yield that is a fraction of the yield of the atomic bomb that we used in Hiroshima. Look, any nuclear weapons use is horrific and a catastrophe and is ushering us into a new age that we don't want to be in. And it's horrible for anybody who's in the vicinity, uh, not just of that explosion, but of the nuclear fallout for it. Uh, I think the risk of Armageddon comes from whether or not, A, that weapon is used, and B, things escalate to the point where the United States and Russia are in a conflict, right? And, and so I do think we have lots of steps to go here. We've seen threats from Putin. We have not necessarily seen the U.S. Uh, making reference to the fact that Russia's nuclear arsenal has been put on a different posture. So we've not seen yeah. Russia acting on that threat yet. Uh, and what? then there's a secondary question of what might happen after the use of a nuclear weapon. So we have further to go before I think we're getting into the kinds of nuclear standoff scenarios that we, uh, you know, all learned about from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, but I think what the president's comments do reflect is, for the first time in a very long time, we're even having this conversation. And this is yeah. not a conversation that anybody wants to be having. Indeed. I mean, I, and he wondered aloud at the same fundraiser just moments ago. I'm trying to figure out what is Putin's off-ramp? Where does he find a way out? Where does he find himself in a position that he does not only lose face, but lose significant power within Russia? I mean, I, that's something I think we've all wondered. And do you think at this point there is an off-ramp for Putin? Do you think he's even looking for one? Nothing that Putin's doing suggests that, with the mobilization that he's done within Russia, with how much he's personally invested in this war. I think the reality everybody understands is there, frankly, is really no safe, face-saving path out for Putin. He's already failed. He failed to conquer Ukraine. He failed to conquer Kyiv. Now he's failing to even hold the territories that he wanted to annex in Ukraine. He doesn't even control the territory that he announced before the Russian people in the world he was annexing. And, and so you, you want to an off-ramp of sorts, obviously, from an escalation and the use of nuclear weapons. But a face-saving situation for Vladimir Putin might not be possible right now. Um, and, and that's a circumstance where you don't know whether if Putin is cornered, he decides to escalate to the use of nuclear weapons. Frankly, we also don't know. Somebody has to follow that order inside of Russia, right? So there's a lot of uncertainties here. There's a lot of dangers for Vladimir Putin in taking that step. 
China, his biggest benefactor in the world, I'm sure, does not want to see this happen. No country in the world wants to see the taboo around nuclear weapons broken. So Vladimir Putin has a lot of risks, too, as he considers whether to take that step. Um, but the, this question of how the war in Ukraine ends, uh, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question. Not Joe Biden, not Vladimir Putin, not Volodymyr Zelensky. So that, I think, is what makes this such an uncertain situation. Yeah, I, I, you mentioned uh, Xi Jinping and Modi in India to some degree is also someone that's uh, cooled Putin's jets, to, I, I guess, marginally in all of this. Would you expect that there are bilateral talks or trilateral talks going on between the U.S., China and India to make sure that someone is talking to Vladimir Putin and trying to talk him off the ledge in terms of nuclear? Alex, it's a really good point, because um, what we've seen is reports of, you know, the U.S. sending messages to Russia, warning them against doing this. I'm sure that's happening. I'm also sure that's what's happening is the U.S. is reaching out to China and saying, look, we have not been getting along very well lately. We may even have different views about the war in Ukraine and the sanctions. President Biden's stunning warning tonight about the danger of Russian President Vladimir Putin using a nuclear weapon as his forces suffer setbacks in Ukraine. At a fundraiser here in New York, this is what he said. He said, for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have the threat of a nuclear weapon if, in fact, things continue down the path they are going. I want to bring in straight away CNN senior White House correspondent Phil Mattingly, retired Lieutenant General uh, Mark Hurtling, uh, global affairs analyst Susan Glasser, and Max Boots, senior fellow on the Council on Foreign Relations. Good to have all of you on. Thank you very much. Phil, I'm going to start with you because these comments are startling from the president. What more can you tell us about? You know, I think they were startling. They were jarring. They were very vivid. And I think that's what caught a lot of people off guard when he made these remarks in the fundraiser. It was not on camera. He tends to be more candid in his fundraisers. We've seen over the course of the last several months. Um, but the administration has been very kind of calm and collected when they discuss this. They don't appreciate the saber rattling. They warn against it. But they've made clear they have not seen any signs that we are moving closer to a nuclear conflict. That element has not changed. I've talked to multiple U.S. officials tonight. They say there's been no sign that President Putin is moving towards using nuclear weapons, no new signal over the course of the last 24 hours uh, that he's decided to use nuclear weapons. And the U.S. has not changed its posture when it comes to nuclear weapons. So that's an important note here. I think with the president was getting at was something that U.S. officials have been trying to grapple with since President Putin's speech just last Friday, where he once again laid the, out in very detailed terms the potential for nuclear war. And I want to read one thing that the president said in particular, because I think it gets at this. He said, I don't think there's any such thing as the ability to easily use tactical nuclear weapons and not end up with Armageddon. And what this gets at right now, as the president has kind of worked through this process analytically, is the idea that this has been thrown out as a potential kind of half measure that President Putin could take. Just use tactical nuclear weapons. The U.S. has warned Moscow directly behind the scenes, officials say, what they would do if that were to occur. But the president's point here is there is no half measure. Any time, any move in this direction would set up an escalatory ladder that just simply would not end, leading to Armageddon. It's a warning, a blunt one, a vivid one, but a very, very clear warning about the stakes and the dangers here. Uh, General, I want to bring you in because, it, as Phil said, I don't think there's any such thing as the ability to easily use a tactical nuclear weapon and not end up with Armageddon. I mean, is, are we right to uh, qualify this as startling? Is this terrifying to hear? But it, is it a real possibility as well? It certainly is, Don. And a lot of people have been concerned about this from the very beginning of this conflict. Let me tell you, the last time I observed a Russian exercise in Moscow, outside of Moscow, they have a tendency in their exercises, their training events, to always end their training events with a nuclear index, 
end of exercise. It's something they practice and, and it's something they're very comfortable with. Now, they've never used them for real uh, other than in tests. So this is something, and I think it's why the Biden administration, rightfully so in my view, has had this concern in the back of their mind since the beginning of this conflict. Susan Glasser, uh, the president also said here he is, he says, I, I'm trying to figure out what is Putin's off ramp. Where does he find a way out here? Where does, does he find himself in a position that he does not only uh, lose face, but lose significant power within Russia? That's the president's quote. Putin has backed himself into a corner. So how does he get out of it? Yeah, I think that's one of the, you know, words when I hear off-ramp and American officials talking about Putin, because again and again and again, Putin has shown over the last two decades that he, he is heedless, uh, largely, of American efforts to, you know, guide him in any direction, uh, and off-ramps are not appreciated. One thing is that, you know, here we are just, you know, a few months into Putin's war in Ukraine, and in a way, one of the horrific consequences is that we've already normalized talk about nuclear war. Putin's nuclear saber-rattling has had the effect, has produced a response from the president of the United States in which we are essentially routinely now talking about what would have been unthinkable just a year ago. So I think that's, that's one problem. The other thing is, does Putin feel encouraged that despite his reverses on the battlefield, his nuclear blackmail has in fact encouraged the United States to possibly be more open to seeking a settlement. So that's one worry and one risk for President Biden uh, in, in talking about this. But, you know, again, we're in really uncharted territory here, Don, it seems to me. Uh, just a year ago, can you imagine even having this conversation? Right at all. I mean, right on. Uh, not at all. We could, I could even have imagined it. But look how look at the turn of events over the last year. I mean, Max, why do you think the president is speaking so freely about the use of nuclear weapons? Well, I think what he was trying to do, Don, was to try to deter Putin. I think what he was trying to signal was that even if Putin were to use only, quote unquote, only a tactical nuclear weapon, that it could still escalate into a strategic nuclear exchange into into a major nuclear war. And I think he was trying to, I suspect he was trying to signal uh, Putin about the dangers of tactical nuclear use. But there is a danger in, in turn in doing what, in saying what Biden said, because remember what Putin is trying to do is he's trying to scare us. He is trying to make up for the major reverses that his uh, ground forces are suffering in Ukraine as we speak. He's trying to terrify us that unless we stop supporting Ukraine, he might go nuclear. And so I think there's a thin line between deterring Putin and amplifying his threats. And I'm not sure that it's helpful to talk about nuclear Armageddon or the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think, you know, we need to make clear that we will not be deterred, that we will stay the course, and that there will be unacceptable consequences for him from any use of, of nuclear weapons. We should not amplify those threats and, and thereby do his bidding for him. So to be clear, you're not a fan of the language the president used. I mean, it's it's... I mean, I understand what the president is trying to do. I'm not sure that some of the inflammatory language is helpful. But again, as, as Susan said, we are in uncharted territory here. So I don't think anybody has necessarily the right playbook for dealing with this situation. Now, before we go down and get into our stories for the day and slideshows, fucking come on, man. Nuclear Armageddon, and you saw the last bite in the intro was him running away. Do you know what would happen if Trump would talk about nuclear Armageddon? 
Do you know what would happen? Why would he say that? He's scaring the children. But we were just good with it. They didn't even freak out at all. They just didn't. So let's get a few ash and trash out of the way before we get into this. This is a good one. This is uh, uh, AP published a tweet seven minutes ago about a town in Florida that was totally blocked off and they couldn't get in because they couldn't find anything to bash DeSantis. But then, of course, uh, it was already fixed. DeSantis has fixed everything pretty damn quick. Even the president went down and you really couldn't find a whole lot to bitch about. Yeah. So there's that. Sorry, media. This is a good one. Yeah. Little 2A fight back that the New York stuff is just not going to go through. And then we get into our granddaddy of them all. And I can't get pictures because Washington Post has fucking blocked me the fuck out. And I fucking hate them. But... We have federal prosecutors filing charges against Hunter Crackhead Biden. Under pressure, the new report on the investigation into Hunter Biden on possible tax and other charges. It's nearing its conclusion. Could the president's son face federal charges? A new report about the investigation into Hunter Biden. According to the Washington Post, federal agents investigating the president's son believe there is enough evidence for criminal charges involving tax violations and a false statement. Senior national correspondent Terry Moran has the story. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, George. This investigation has been going on for years into the tangled business dealings and the messy personal life of the president's son. And now, according to the Washington Post, federal agents on the case believe that Hunter Biden should be prosecuted. Overnight, the Washington Post reported that federal agents believe they have enough evidence to charge Hunter Biden with tax crimes and lying on a federal form when he purchased a gun. The Post, citing anonymous sources, said the president's son's case has now moved one step closer to a potential conclusion with a U.S. attorney in Delaware who was appointed by President Trump set to decide whether to proceed. The agents, the Post reported, determined months ago they had assembled a viable criminal case against... Breaking news from the Washington Post. They're reporting that federal agents investigating Hunter Biden say they have gathered, quote, sufficient evidence to charge him with tax and gun purchase crimes. Joining me right now is Washington Post national security reporter Devlin Barrett. So, Devlin, walk us through what we know, what you know. Right. So this investigation was opened in 2018. It's been going on a long time and it's been supervised uh, since the Biden administration began by a holdover U.S. attorney uh, from the Trump administration in Delaware. And what we're told is that agents believe and have believed for a number of months that they have a chargeable case against Hunter Biden. But it's important to remember, charging decisions are not made by agents. Charging decisions are made by prosecutors at the Justice Department. And they will decide this. These, these crimes that we're talking about, what are the details, these alleged crimes, um, uh, regarding taxes and regarding a gun purchase. Well, right on, on the tax question, it's we don't know a lot of the specifics, but we know it's on the on the sort of general problem of allegedly failing to report significant amounts of income. And on the gun issue, it's a little more complicated in that when a person buys a gun, they fill out a, a from a licensed dealer, they fill out some paperwork, and they have to say a number of things, and they have to be truthful in those statements. And the allegation or concern is that in 2018, when Hunter Biden bought a gun, he said he did not have a substance problem and was not addicted to, to drugs. 
when in fact in his own autobiography he writes that he was using drugs quite significantly in that time period and he has since said he's gotten clean and, and, and beaten that addiction. Um, does this have anything to do with the laptop? So it's really unclear. We can't tell at this point how important or unimportant the laptop has been to the to the, this federal investigation. Just to back up, you know, for folks who don't remember, there there was a lot of to do just before the 2020 election that a laptop that Hunter Biden supposedly dropped off at a. The feds are pretty confident they have an open and shut case against him. Is that what you're hearing? That's the reporting. Actually, we, we at NBC News, we tried very hard and talked to people familiar with the case who would neither confirm nor deny this post report. But uh, but as you as you know, Joe, I mean, tax cases are not all that difficult. He paid a two million dollar tax bill last year. So he was in arrears on his taxes. The question with those cases is always when does it become criminal tax evasion? And there's a lot of prosecutorial discretion about that. There's a lot of people who evade taxes who are never prosecuted criminally. So that's going to be a big issue in this case. In terms of like corruption, conflict of interest, we've never heard a hint that that was that there were potential criminal charges there because Hunter Biden wasn't an office holder. It was perfectly legal for him to take money from foreign governments uh, as long as it wasn't he wasn't inappropriately giving them information from his family or something. There's no hint of that. As bad as it looks, we should all acknowledge it looked terrible. He did this while his father was vice president and in charge of Ukraine issues. And he was taking $50,000 a month from that energy company. But no hint that he was ever going to be charged on that count. But again, yes, the tax charges, uh, it's a fairly simple proposition. But now it all comes down to what is this U.S. attorney in Delaware who was appointed by Donald Trump? What is he going to decide on this case? So NBC's Ken Delenian, thank you for that. Why don't you stay with us? We definitely want to get your insight and analysis on. Tonight there is movement in the Hunter Biden criminal investigation with sources telling CBS News the FBI believes it has sufficient evidence against the president's son. The years-long federal investigation into Hunter Biden's business practices began before Joe Biden was president. And sources tell CBS News the FBI believes there is enough evidence to prosecute. That evidence was provided months ago to David Weiss. The U.S. attorney in Delaware was appointed by President Trump and is yet to bring charges. There's a difference between agents gathering evidence and a U.S. attorney making a prosecutorial decision. And I think he will have free reign to make the decision. Sources tell CBS News the probe explored whether the younger Biden, his uncle James and other business associates violated tax, money laundering and foreign lobbying laws. Since the early months of this year, the probe narrowed, focusing on delinquent tax payments, including income Hunter Biden earned as a board member for a Ukrainian energy company. A source close to the president's son said he paid off more than a million dollars in past due taxes. Sources familiar with the probe told CBS News investigators were also looking at allegations that Hunter Biden made false statements on a gun registration form and may have disposed of a gun improperly. So it figures to be a fairly straightforward charge to prove and it uh, carries a significant penalty under federal law. Tonight, new signs Hunter Biden could face criminal charges. The Washington Post reporting federal agents believe they have a plausible case to charge the president's son with tax crimes and also with lying on a gun application when he said he wasn't using illegal drugs, citing people familiar with the case. The final decision about whether to file charges rests with the top federal prosecutor in Delaware, who was appointed by President Trump. The Justice Department declined comment. NBC News has not confirmed the report. 
Biden's lawyer saying prosecutors in this case are diligently and thoroughly weighing not just evidence provided by agents, but also all the other witnesses. Hunter Biden's business dealings have repeatedly come under fire, including taking a lucrative position on a Ukrainian energy company's board while his father was vice president. An NBC News analysis of information on his laptop showed he and his firms were paid $11 million from 2013 to 2018, including by Chinese and Ukrainian firms. Last year, Hunter Biden insisted he did nothing wrong. I will be cleared of any wrongdoing. His lawyer said he paid a $2 million tax debt. Two years late. The stuff is so rich. Hunter's lawyer with a rare on the record statement it is a federal felony for a federal agent to leak information about a grand jury investigation such as this one. Any agent you cite as a source of your article apparently has committed such felonies. Oh, really? 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 We're going to go down that lane. That's that's where we're going. Get the fuck out of here. Home Skillet has so many crimes on there, but we're just going to go after tax evasion and a gun? That's that's all we're doing? Really? I, I, I just sometimes... Do they understand how perilous everything is? I don't think people understand how perilous... Our democracy really is because if you really want to break it down either side of the extremes could start some serious shit and when you're just persecuting conservatives and you're letting a guy like hunter with video and the big guy and who doesn't know about it now it's all over the internet even if you don't look for it you're gonna run into it crackhead pictures of biden Letter on Hunter Biden's laptop shows 2017 deal with Qatar undermining Trump administration. Oh, there's that. Yeah, that's okay. We got no problem about that. No problems whatsoever. We're just going to let it ride. It's all going to ride. And overall, I think what the left is missing is that nobody's monolithic. I mean, these people here are monolithic. The, the far left, where fuck America, just get rid of red states, and we just keep America. Those people, that far left Prague, people run Twitter, they fucking hate you. Hey, that's the monolithic, go fuck yourself. But everybody else, we see what's going on, and the numbers are starting to hurt, hurt them, as Rasmussen says. 52% of Hispanic voters think the government is doing too little to reduce illegal immigration, and only 15% say too much. Are those numbers a complete surprise? Maybe you've been following too much mainstream news. Luckily, Rasmussen reports, with the help of Numbers USA, can set you straight. For almost three years, Rasmussen Reports has been working closely with Numbers USA to poll on America's opinions about immigration. Every year, we poll at least 32,000 people with a set of 10 immigration-related questions, and that has given us a pretty unique insight into how public opinions about immigration have changed over time. 
In this picture, a higher number means people have a generally softer stance on immigration, and a lower number means vice versa. Check out that November 2020 to see how fast opinions can change. Sometimes, however, we take a deeper dive, as we did in May this year when we polled nearly 3,000 Hispanic voters. Search Google and you aren't going to find many polls like this, since Hispanic voters as a group are hard to define as a block and even harder to reach. But we took the time and effort to apply our methodology and get it right. I'll go over some of what we found, but this is a publicly sponsored poll, so feel free to examine all 18 questions in the crosstabs yourself. First note about demographics. I can't go into all the details and challenges of weighting a poll like this. We obviously couldn't weight the poll by race, but here are the numbers we use for gender, age, region, party, and income. Additionally, we know that 50% of this population attends religious services regularly, and 50% do not. 44% were Catholic, 25% Christian, and 31% something else. 52% had a college degree, 22% were immigrants, and 62% considered their primary identity Hispanic. Also, this group had a 50% Biden approval rating, which was within a few points of what our daily Biden approval rating showed for Hispanic voters at the same time we ran this poll. On the question of illegal immigration, is the government doing too much or too little to reduce illegal border crossings and visitor overstays? Or is the level of action about right? 15% say too much, but 52% or more than three times as many say too little. Among older Hispanics, the sentiment is much stronger, with only two times as many aged 18 to 39 saying too little, but roughly seven times more among voters 40 plus. Republican and independent Hispanics, by a six to one margin, think the government isn't doing enough, but also many more Democrats agree, 37% to 19%. Lots of headlines have been devoted to painting efforts to reduce illegal border crossings as racist, but 80% of Hispanic voters say the U.S. is open and welcoming, including 43% who say very open and welcoming, and only 2% say not at all. These numbers were pretty consistent across all demographics, but the one that stuck out to me was that 54% of Trump voters said the U.S. was very open and welcoming, but only 35% of Biden Hispanic voters. Are Hispanic voters lockstep in line with all anti-immigration stances? Nope. 66% support giving lifetime work permits to most of the 2 million illegal residents who came here when they were minors, commonly called dreamers. 36% strongly support it and only 8% are strongly opposed. 79% of Hispanic Democrats support dreamer work permits and even 51% of Republicans. Want to know where Hispanic voters sit on party ID? This sample was 25% Republican, 47% Democrat, and 29% Independent. Democrats had a 10% lead among men, but a 32% lead among women. Democrats led by 30 points among 18 to 39 year olds and 17% among those 40 to 65, but Republicans had a three point edge among those over 65. Over the last few years, however, 34% of voters have moved closer to the Republican Party and only 30% closer to the Democrat Party. Let's look at their 2020 votes. According to this poll, 
52% of Hispanic voters voted for Biden, but only 37% for Trump, a 15-point advantage for Biden. But what would the election look like if a rematch were held today? Keep in mind this poll was run this May. Biden would win by only one point, a 14-point shift in only, at the time of this polling, about 20 months since the 2020 election. Who did Trump gain the most among in those 20 months? Democrats by 25%, 18 to 39 year olds by 20%, women 16%, those who identify primarily as Hispanic 16%, middle-aged voters 15%, independents 14%, and men 13%. He didn't have much change among those age 65 plus, and he actually lost six points among Republicans. Perhaps the most relevant question in this poll, however, shows that among Hispanic voters, Democrats have only a four-point edge in the generic ballot, even though Democrats had a 22-point edge in the sample party ID. We'd like to take another chance to thank Numbers USA, who commissioned the poll, and we welcome you to follow the link in the description to check out their new book that features our poll, Political Migrants, Hispanic Voters on the Move. If you wanna learn more about the shifting racial demographics and how they're going to influence electoral outcomes in the coming decades. The biggest takeaway, I'm pretty sure these numbers show that the growing ranks of Hispanic voters no longer represent an emerging- I, I think they thought that that thing was gonna work. And this lady, Amy Siskin, she writes for The Atlantic. And they have decided that, you know, it's time for an election, so we go all in with the, you know, Confederate States of America bullshit again. The South is no longer simply a region. A certain version of it has become an identity shared among white rural conservative Americans from coast to coast. And on the inside of the article is this nice little tidbit that I would like to read. This would surely come as a, as a surprise to the men who profess fidelity to the state and region above national identity when they side with the Confederacy in 1861. We're talking about the Confederacy. It's Nazis or Confederate, always during election season. But it's a product of a dynamic which white rural Americans around the country have adopted the culture of white rural Southerners. This is only one piece of the region's heritage, a rich cosmopolitan and multiracial mix that has shaped the entire country's music, food, and culture, though it is also one of those that has become the go-to stereotype of the region's identity. No, you stereotype us. This right here is not only the sneering down on Southerners because they think they're better than us. It's because they hate people that don't live like them. They live in rats and cages and they think that's cool. We don't. And we're the bastards. That's why you watched all that data on driving. We were breaking COVID regulations. That was a lie. All the red states broke up earlier because they are less dense populations. So you didn't need as many masks. And we went to back to life earlier and you were jealous of that because you were still sitting behind 14 masks with your house duct taped shut. The journalist Will Wilkerson, who's from Iowa, wrote about this in a Substack newsletter last summer, recalling how during his childhood driving from Minnesota, Missouri, would produce a spectrum of cultural signifiers and regional drawls. No more 
Everywhere, it's the same cloying prop country, the same aggressive oversized F-150s. There it is. They're telling you what to drive. The same Tumbletown, Walmarts, Dollar Generals, the same eagle-heavy fashion, the same confused, aggrieved air of relentless material decline. Even the accents are more and more the same, trending towards a generalized Larry the Cable Guy twerk. Do you know what would happen if you wrote an article saying that everybody in blue states looks the same? Because they do. That would not be, that would not be good. You would not be able to get away with that shit. You just wouldn't. I... I once again proffer the stereotypical we hate the South shit gets really, really, really old. And I don't think you're doing yourself. Uh, here, here's the demand for white supremacy coming from the FBI headquarters vastly outstrips the supply of white spread, he said one agent. We covered this and I brought it back again because it's really important that we understand that it isn't any more about politics and the direction of the country. It is that they really, really, really fucking hate you. They hate your religion. They hate your guns. They hate that you have to drive a truck because you need it for work. Or you like to go off-road and, and you have a four-wheel drive. They hate that you own a boat and you go camping. They hate that you live spread out. They hate that you just don't want to do what the fuck they say and it is no more evident than that slide because they believe we're all white supremacists. And what happened to 11 pro-life people? Remember, Antifa, Jane's Revenge, tore shit up and still are. There's no open investigations, but we're going after geriatric pro-lifers. But if you're not going to let me, then I'll just... No, I want to know why you were banging on my door with a gun. You're not going to tell me anything? No, do not. I tried. No, you didn't. You did not try. This is not acceptable. Can I have your name? You're not going to give me your name. You're not going to give me any information.
Eleven pro-life activists have been indicted by Biden's DOJ for protesting outside an abortion clinic in Tennessee. Meet the Christian Meemaws and Pawpaws charged as co-conspirators now facing up to 11 years in federal prison for blocking. They blocked a pro-life center. That's, That's what they did. Now, I want to make you understand, this is happening everywhere now. These are illegal aliens that come in to our country illegally and commit crime, and we still have the border open. We we don't give a fuck about the border. That's not that big a deal. Why would you fucking care about the border? You're a fucking bigot. But these people, oh, you got to take them the fuck down. They gots to go. Are you fucking crazy? Department of Justice charged 11 protesters after blocking an abortion clinic. Now, I want us to think about it. This is from the Washington Examiner. You have an article from Fox that I can't get the soundbite. Um, and you see what, what they do. And here, I have a, another video that I forgot to download. Let's, uh, let's watch this version of this important law enforcement operation. America's no place for baby killing. We're better than that, guys. We are better than that to allow all of this baby killing. Do you think it's coincidental? Do you think it's coincidental that this country has gotten worse and worse since they passed Roe v. Wade back in 1973? And now this country's on the precipice of a fall and going under some sort of communism. Is that, is that, come on guys, you know I'm talking to you, you know, you know I'm making some good points here. This country's falling because we gave in to the baby murders and the godless people. Saying, get God out of the schools, get God prayer out, get all of this stuff out. And look what's happened to this country. Economically, we're we're going into the pit. We're going into the abyss. This country's under judgment because our leaders didn't make the right choices. And the people didn't hold them to hold their feet to the fire to make the right choices. And you guys, you guys know what I'm saying is true. <laughs> that they had a Christian. Go ahead, sir. All right. Where do you want me? Uh, right here is fine. I think he's going to go grab a microphone. Okay, and... sure. Yeah. Cowboys. <laughs> I mean, it's only you and me here, so. <laughs> I, I got a few more. Check, 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 check.
Y'all didn't have any else, anything else going on today, did you? A little bit. It's cool. Spring, I mean, see, winter came back for us anyway. Good grief. Enjoying the last couple of days. You hold on, how do you want me? Oh, you're fine. You're in, they're good? Did you say it's about your first and last name? Yep, it's Paul Vaughn, P-A-U-L-V-A-U-G-H-N. And uh, are you with a certain group? Or? I Personally, I'm with Person of Tennessee, but this is just a group of Christians uh, joining together to, to work on stopping abortion in our country. All right, so tell us about what happened here today. Yeah, so today what you saw was a an act of biblical obedience. And Christians came together of several different denominations coming here to Mount Juliet to lay down their lives to rescue children that were scheduled to die at this abortion clinic today. Careful not only does the the pill abortions, but they also do surgical abortions. And they were scheduled today to dismember little boys and girls inside their mother's womb. So the Christians came together today. We came into the building and we said. You need that. Julie Kelly just pulled up the federal indictment against Lem pro-life activists now facing felonies for an anti-abortion protest more than 18 months ago. This DOJ is out of control. Enjoyment during a lot of heavy lifting here. Literally, let's let's go back and, and look in time, folks. How many things did BLM and pro-life, or excuse me, BLM and Antifa block? Women's March block. We're talking highways. Nobody got arrested. They burned down buildings and got away with it. And it was a Tennessee abortion clinic. That's what it was. And because of it, I I once again say, what is justice in America? What is justice? Because FBI won't provide updates saying whether it's arrested anyone over attacks on pro-life organizations, centers, or church. And that comes from just the news. By no means a conservative enterprise. They're not investigating anything. Biden poured $3.8 million into anti-miss, dis, or malinformation push. And that's what this is. See, if you see the pattern, you send a letter, they start arresting parents because they were stopping the transgender CRT in the school. They lost their ability to kill babies until the 95th fucking trimester, and now they're getting pro-life people locked the fuck up. And you can say, well, maybe they broke the law. Well, here's the deal. It goes back to what I said. If you do not have the same thing in the justice system, if it's okay to burn a police station down, but it's not okay to stand on a fucking sidewalk next to an abortion clinic and protest. If it's okay to just tear down whole fucking cities and block everything. Is it okay to storm the fucking White House so that the Secret Service puts the POTUS in a bunker and clearly it was okay because our media said all oh, they used C's, they used they used uh, CS on them, which they didn't. We'll get to this one in a second. 
And then while you're going through all this, you then look at the politics of it. Nets ignore AP bombshell on Ohio Democrat fetching billions or excuse me, millions of dollars from opioid con- uh, companies. And I want you to know, this is the guy who said we need to fucking kill mega. The Democrats aren't right on everything. And I'm willing to sit down and have conversations about how we can move out of this age of stupidity and into an age of reconciliation and reform. How do we fix all of these broken systems? Some of those answers will come from Republicans, not not the extremists that we're dealing with every single day. We've got to kill and confront that movement. Um, but, the, you know, working with normal mainstream Republicans, I think that's going to be really, really important because we have to reform uh, these systems. And I will tell them, too, like, we got to get the government out of our business. I'm all in on that. You see the Dobbs decision. You see, you know, in Florida, Ohio, Democratic Senate candidate Tim Ryan is facing criticism tonight over donations he accepted from drug distributors blamed for their roles in the opioid crisis. Congressman Ryan is running against Republican J.D. Vance and has made his opponent's record on fighting the epidemic a central theme of his campaign, hitting Vance on that issue. An Associated Press review found three companies donated a combined $27,000 to the Democrat Ryan between 2007 and August of this year. So if you're a Democrat, you can do pretty much whatever the fuck you want to do. And now he's going to pardon all these people who had drug charges and just let them go. And I just want to refresh your memory. I'm going to play a couple sound bites of the people that wanted to fund. And the pro-lifers and Ryan doing whatever he wants and druggies doing whatever they want. It's all about equity and skin color. Remember, we are the terrorists. The DHS said so himself. Gianna, what did morning, you, Brian. what did you find? Well, since my brother Christian has been murdered, I've been out for justice for victims of violent crime across the country. This week, I take you on a journey to Washington, D.C., where I spoke with members on both sides of the aisle. Here's what they had to say. You just want to talk about the crime crisis. You're a leader. I, I would think you would have a reaction to what's going on in the country. Uh, no reaction? I'm here in the nation's capital talking to members of the Congress on both sides of the aisle about the crime crisis in America and what do they plan to do about it. On the first day, if Republicans are victorious in November and you become the Speaker of the House, what will the commitment to America do for crime on day one? Well, on the first day, you're going to see that no longer will the voice of Washington back here where the Democrats control say defund the police. It'll be the opposite. Our commitment to America is our roadmap for an economy that's strong, a nation that's safe, a future that's built upon freedom, and a government that's accountable. What we will do, we'll put a score to every single prosecutor from Portland to Philadelphia. They get federal money. We'll actually sit there and, and have the debate. Do they deserve the federal money if they're not upholding the law? A lot of the crime that's perpetrated, the majority of it is black on black. What do you think we can do about that as a community? The most important thing is how do we deal with this long term? We have to get our kids educated. Black young men who could not. We need to completely dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. Any reason? 
reaction to rising crime in America? Name, I'll look for you at the next vote. You supported the defund the police movement. It led to rising crime. Do you have any reaction? Any reaction? Oh, no reaction. It impacts your your citizens. Your memoir uh, tells a remarkable story of uh, of, of your your journey, uh, your journey from being a minimum wage worker, a survivor of domestic and sexual violence, uh, being an unhoused parent, uh, and and moving uh, moving through all of these phases, all of these challenges in your life to becoming a member of Congress. Uh, talk about how that helps you represent those that too often have nobody remembering their plights day in and day out. I remember the pain from all of it still today. And I'm not saying that that's healthy. <laughs> I am in therapy, but <laughs> I remember the pain of being hungry and only making sure that my children were eating. I remember the, the, the fear that I had of closing my eyes too long at night, sleeping in the car, um, afraid that one of my children wouldn't wake up. I remember the pain of being brutalized by police officers where they threw my body up in the air and I landed on the ground and I was stomped. I, will, I won't forget the pain. I remember the pain of all of those sexual assaults, the pain of the domestic violence when I was left for dead. I remember that and I walk with that every single day because there are people still going through that right now. And as I go to sleep at night, somebody is hurting, somebody's sleeping on the street, somebody is in an abusive relationship and we go on with our lives as if it doesn't affect us, as if because we don't see it, it's not a thing. Well, I feel it. I feel it and so I'm going to continue you to fight as long as I breathe I will fight for my people and uh, given that you've shared so much of these really deeply painful feelings in this book what are you uh, the Department of Homeland Security was formed in the wake of the September 11th attacks how has it evolved since then to safeguard the US from foreign threats the um, Jonathan the threat landscape has evolved considerably over the last 20 years. You know, back when 9-11 occurred in those in those years, we were very focused on the foreign terrorists, the individual who sought to do us severe harm to enter the United States and and do us harm. It then evolved. We began uh, to be more and more concerned about the individual already resident in the United States, radicalized by a foreign terrorist ideology. Now um, we are seeing an emerging threat, of course, over the last several years of the domestic violent extremist, the individual here in the United States radicalized to violence by a foreign terrorist ideology, but also an ideology of hate, anti-government sentiment, false narratives propagated on online platforms, even personal grievances. The threat landscape has evolved. 20 years ago, uppermost in our minds was not the cybersecurity threat, the threat of cyber criminals or foreign adverse um, states. Now it very much is. We have evolved. We have grown to meet the evolving threat. We have a cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. We have a center for prevention programs and partnership to address the threat of domestic violent extremism. We've grown our grant funds working in partnership with state, local, tribal, territorial governments. 
We've grown along with that threat because it is our obligation to do so, to make sure that the American people are safe and secure, regardless of the nature of the threat that we confront. Mm -hmm. Mr. Secretary, you have said uh, that domestic extremism, quote, is the single greatest terrorism-related threat in the United States. What are the best ways to combat the domestic terrorism threat? I think, uh, of course, we have to uh, address the underlying cause. And in fact, uh, the president uh, is convening a summit against hate uh, next week. Uh, We have to address why do people radicalize to violence? Um, And we have to work with local communities to equip and empower them to address uh, the threat that could materialize. You know, we have seen in Buffalo, New York, in Uvalde, Texas, um, in Highland Park, um, individuals who uh, showed signs of descending uh, down a path uh, to violence. And we have to educate people on how to identify the signs when... The media just lets them get away with all this shit. They don't say a fucking thing that they were defund. Uh, he even had a line this week that they're the socialists because they took money from some bill or some fucking shit. It's hard to follow. And remember, Kamala was the one that locked all these motherfuckers up for fucking weed. So what the fucking fuck? How can you all of a sudden before no? And then, and then I, I hope I have this. Tell me I have this slide. This is an enemies list. The EIP created what has been called an enemies list of a select group they branded as misinformation in need of censorship. I was one of them and have the distinction of being the only one who was running for Congress while the EIP worked to censor us on behalf of the government. And why this stuff is so scary for most of us is... Because corporate America is drinking this Kool-Aid. I'm sure I'm going to piss off both left and right, so I apologize. Um, That the fetish for manufacturing is part of the general fetish for keeping white males of low education um, outside the cities in the powerful positions they're in in the U.S. And... um, That is really what's going on here. Because when you look at the costs of manufacturing, and Susan Hausman and her co-authors have done a lot, not of manufacturing, of trade, and job displacement and community, Susan Hausman and her co-authors have done a lot of work on this, and I'm sure she'll have a different view than I do. But when I look at the so-called costs of the China shock or the costs of the decline in manufacturing, I always think compared to what? For decades, there was enormous displacement of African-Americans in this economy. Every time there was a recession, African-American unemployment rates shot up much faster and higher than white unemployment rates. Single women were methodically excluded from the workforce, and especially if they became parents, or ghettoed in particular sets of jobs throughout the economy well through the 70s into the 80s. Um, displacements on large scales would happen when technology or trade broke through, like all the secretaries who got replaced by personal computers and other forms of office animation. Excuse me, not animation, automation, excuse me. Um, And these kinds of churn, as the economists put it, never were decried 
They never got political attention. They never got much notice. But when it started being the white male manufacturing people in the so-called heartland, which by definition was not urban, um, then suddenly this was a crisis. We own the science. We own the science, and we think that the world you know, should know it, and, and the platforms themselves also do. Wait, haven't I heard this before? So if they get up and criticize science, nobody's going to know what they're talking about. But if they get up and really aim their bullets at Tony Fauci, well, people could recognize there's a person there, there's a face, there's a vice you can recognize, you see him on television. So it's easy to criticize, but they're really criticizing science because I represent science. Guess what? Global elites think they're smarter than you and they're actively working with big tech platforms to control what you can see and say online. A few weeks ago, the World Economic Forum held a tackling disinformation panel. What did they talk about? What's their end game? And is Dr. Fauci okay now that the UN has claimed the title of science incarnate? I represent science. Unfortunately, I only have answers to two of those questions. But without further ado, let's take a look at what our wiser-than-thou elites have to say about tackling so-called disinformation. All in this week's episode of Sensor Track with Peyton. The World Economic Forum's Tackling Disinformation Panel included representatives from the United Nations, Brown University, and the ever-unbiased CNN. The conversation centered on the left's favorite topics, so-called disinformation and misinformation, which Brown University professor Claire Wardle coined as polluted information. Fundamentally, our information environment will always be polluted in different ways and that actually as citizens we have to learn how to navigate polluted information environments. I'll give credit where credit is due. Information literacy is important. Those surfing the web should be equipped with tools to discern fact from fiction. However, world doesn't seem content with just education. She went on to say that groups and platforms need to do more to mitigate the harms caused by alleged misinformation. You know, this panel is called tackling disinformation, but really it's all forms of polluted information that we should be aware of and taking different steps, you know, to stop Russian actors who are deliberately trying to destabilize a country. We need to take certain actions there to prevent Uncle Bob from sharing misleading information at the Thanksgiving table is a different set of responses. Hang on, what are they going to do to Uncle Bob? Cart him away from Thanksgiving dinner? But in all seriousness, think about that. Wordle seems to be saying that unelected elites should be able to control what your family is allowed to say in your own home. It's all of these different things that we need to learn and understand in order for us to try and mitigate the harms of polluted information. What does she mean by harm? What does she consider misinformation? Leftists often like to use general or emotional language such as misinformation or harm. Why? Because they don't have a specific definition. Leftist elites just want free reign to censor content that doesn't align with their desired narrative. Wardle all but admitted as much when she criticized the First Amendment. There are many things about the First Amendment that are very, very special, but I do feel that it stops nuanced conversations about speech. Wait a minute! How does a right to free speech stop nuanced conversations about anything, let alone speech? It just doesn't add up. My frustration is I wish we could talk more about harm when it comes to speech. 
So people say, well, misinformation, it's it's really legal speech. You know, we know terrorist content, child sexual abuse imagery, we know what to do about that. That's illegal speech. But lots of these examples, Claire, well, that's legal speech. And I keep saying, but it might be legal, but if it's leading to harm, can't we actually have a conversation about that? Yes, Claire, let's have a conversation about that. Here's my question. What qualifies you, CNN, the UN, or anyone for that matter, to be the arbiters of truth online? We're better than you, and we know it. As we've seen, liberal elites like Wardle seem to think they own science. We own the science, and we think that the world you know, should know it, and, and the platforms themselves also do. That was UN Undersecretary General for Global Communications, Melissa Fleming. She explained how the United Nations partnered with big tech platforms to control the climate change narrative. We partnered with Google, for example. If you Google climate change, you will, at the top of your search, you will get all kinds of UN resources. We started this partnership when we were shocked to see that when we Googled climate change, we were getting incredibly distorted uh, information right at the top. So we, we're becoming much more proactive. Fleming also spoke about the UN's Team Halo project. The organization worked with communist Chinese government-tied TikTok to control information about COVID-19. We, we had another um, trusted messenger project, which was called Team Halo, where we trained scientists um, around the world and some doctors on TikTok. And we had TikTok working with us. And um, these scientists who had virtually no following to start with um, got verified ticks. Um, they started bringing people in their community into their labs, into their offices, and answering their questions, engaging with them. Um, it really took off, and many of them became kind of like national media go-to um, advisors. Uh, and you know, so it, it is—it was a layered. Um, deployment of ideas and, and, and tactics. The panelists openly picked winners and losers. The UN asked big tech to amplify its hand-picked voices that would parrot the UN-approved narrative. At the same time, Wardle openly called for the same platforms to silence those who allegedly pollute information online. There are words for these actions. Collusion, propaganda, and censorship. The WEF, UN, and other leftist elites like Wardle have made no qualms about their desire to recalibrate the world to fit their utopian vision. Remember when the WEF tried to sell us on this version of the future? Wait, what? Their perfect world appears to be one in which the global elites are the puppet masters of truth. And you can't even vote them out, even if you want to. You'll have all your needs provided for, as long as you don't step out of line. You can say whatever you want, as long as you agree with those in power. This is your future if the WEF, UN, and leftist elites have their way. That is why we must stand up for our freedoms. We must call on big tech companies to mirror the First Amendment, protect speech, and stand up to the globalist elites. Drop a like and comment below if you enjoyed this video. Every like, comment, and share helps us spread the word about big tech's bias and combat those who wish to silence anyone who doesn't agree with the radical... I mean, this week, uh, a Trump spokesman, and I don't like playing Trump spokesman things, but this is almost true that they're going after people who just have Trump flags in their yards. We get to another question, but you just use the words police state. Uh, expand on that. I've got about a minute left or so. Uh, wh why do you call it a police state? I mean, those are those are uh, charged words as it relates to what people may think of 
a police state. How do you define that? And why did, why did you say it like that, Liz? Because they spy, they illegally seize. Look what they did to Mike Lindell. Look what they did to uh, the pro-life activists in Pennsylvania, right. uh, raiding his home uh, for, you know, not even a, a real crime here, a misdemeanor shoving um, that was thrown out of court. If you uh, have a thought crime, not actual crime, they're going to show up at your door, the FBI, with no evidence except they track you and they find you and corner you at a Hardee's or they knock on your door just for having a Trump flag in your yard. And you weren't even at the Capitol on January 6th. And even if you were, even if you were there to hear the president of the United States in Washington, D.C., uh, talk about the rigged and stolen 2020 election, they have no right to come and ask you questions and track you down. It is quite chilling what the FBI has been doing, spying, using Facebook messages to spy on people. They spied on President Trump's lawyer while they were trying to falsely impeach him the first time. That's what I mean. It's out of control and it's not going to stop unless we the people stop them at the ballot box. That really isn't that far fetched because that's what they're doing. I mean, interesting articles, which I don't think I have them up. I don't think I brought it up. No, that's where we're going to be getting our trans stuff. There's uh, a psycho vagrant attacked a woman in Prospect Park, sprayed her with urine and killed her dog. And this is how the New York Times writes about it. The man is black, the dog's owner white. Like race had something to do with it, which it clearly didn't. You have the New York guy saying he has a national disaster because he's got like 8,000 migrants. But the coat, you know, the southern states, which are all a bunch of rubes, you say, they, they, oh, fuck them. They need 100,000. It's, it's comical. And if this J6 stuff was so important, here's Revolver News. What about the pipe bombers? listening that was just music but they break it down we we know nothing there's streaming cameras there's it's everywhere but we know nothing because they didn't do anything to find anything about it because why would we and all of this is brought to you by democrats who wanted to defund the police who wanted to be down with the dog pound 
And I I just sometimes don't get it. Here's our two uh, asshole sound bites of the week. I'm not doing a media jerk off. Here's Lemon and that Carvel guy. And I think the Carvel guy was drunk. Fuck you, asshole. You asshole. This is why we can't have nice things. You asshole! Are you just an asshole? Is that it? Fuck you, you asshole! You ever hear the saying, you run into an asshole in the morning, you ran into an asshole? You run into assholes all day, you're the asshole. Fuck you, asshole. You! You are such an Dumb asshole! Asshole. Fucking asshole! Get away from me, you asshole. Um, again, the question will be for the voters of Georgia, for, for Republican voters in Georgia, people, voters who are, are, are voters of faith in Georgia. If this isn't too much, what is? Does character count? Or is it just party over country, party over character? Well, it's really about power because people say they don't care, really care That's if it. he paid for an abortion or not or whatever he did. And some of them even calling the woman uh, a derogatory name. Uh, they just care about control of the Senate, which is sad. And <laughs> you, you know, again, it, it's about the, the, the character of the people you send to the Senate. And, and again, I mean, he's running against an actual reverend, <laughs> you know, who, who sits and, and preaches for Martin Luther King's pulpit. If you are a Christian, if you're an evangelical, who are you going A reverend or... Uh, well, what we've been hearing, at least until this revelation, uh, is that you and I know many of our Republican friends have been saying, so what? At the end of the day, I want the vote. Uh, I want control of the Senate, and that matters to me more. Um, but we've, we've not seen the kind of shambolic, incoherent, I mean, amoral lying in erasure of, of this woman, in addition to the hypocrisy about abortion. Reverend Stunning stuff. Or... Hypocrite. I think this just exposes the massive, staggering humanity of conservative evangelicals. I'm not going to call these people Christians because I don't think they embrace very much of Christianity. I mean, how big of a problem right. is it right. for the GOP that this is the, this is the field of candidates they're running in this cycle? It, it, you know, I've said it before. They have a lot of stupid people that vote in their primaries. I really, they really do. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you're not supposed to say that, but it's, it's obvious fact. And you know, when stupid people vote, you know who they nominate? Other stupid people. And, and they have, a, the, the, the Republicans have a problem. They got very low quality people that vote in their primaries and they're producing predictably very low quality candidates. It, it, it's evident, right? Petty, it's all petty. Here's a Washington Post. Uh, actually, Washington and Lincoln would cross Trump because he said something and they didn't like that he said something. Fetterman, record shows light schedules, PA Lieutenant Governor. It's in the AP, nobody else governor. Twitter's bringing out Bird Watch where basically liberals and people that hate conservatives and don't like facts are going to come in and say, no, that's not true and put notes on your shit and you can't do anything about it. It's election time. It is what it is. Damn operative tied to David Brock outfit are using sketchy independent local news sites to push anti-GOP content and battleground states. Not surprising at all. This is an ad you see all the time. Newsom is going to tax oil companies because the price of gas is too high. Which is why the price of gas is too high. 
already because you tax the gas, but now you're going to tax the people selling you the gas, so the gas is going to cost you more, and then you're going to tax it. But that's just math, and I know it's confusing. So let's do a quick trans-woke section using the everything is racist bumper because I like it, and then we'll get into military corner. Everything is racist. everybody I just wanted to give everybody a little example in Portland Oregon uh, how much used rigs we clean up off the streets each one of these is probably a hundred pounds used rigs only used rigs That whole bag, use rigs. Isn't that incredible? What the fuck? Yeah, you're welcome. God bless you. Facts matter. For the left, they don't. But there's some interesting things coming up. Number of trans youth in 2021 up 70% since 2020. It isn't organic. It's not remotely organic. Look at the numbers from 2017 of gender dysphoria, and I believe that's the slide I'm showing right now. It went from 15,000 to 42,000. But then you go into deeper ones, And in 2021, the number has been doubled in size to 42,000 cases. Reason being, the media and society recruiting today's impressionable kids to force leftist progressive narrative and facilitate delusion of gender dysphoria. Author David Marcus tweeted an image of a graph from Komodo Health. Uh, Reuters report, Reuters cited the National Institute of Health. The numbers are staggering again. 2021, there are 42,000 new night dose gender dysphoria. What's more, 17,683 children are on puberty blockers that are not reversible in the last five years. 5,063 of them alone in 2021. Reuters noted that these numbers are probably significant undercount since they don't include children whose records do not specify gender dysphoria because some people aren't using it. I mean, the list of things. Uh, California book was distributed. We talked about it. Gingerbread Man. Um, a school in Colorado encouraged 12-year-old to question their gender identity, then tell them not to tell their parents, which is happening a lot. Disney Channel, That's So Raven. Baymax, that stuff. Barbara Bush Children's Hospital reportedly helped a 9-year-old child switch gender. CNN, MSNBC, ABC, even Fox News, overwhelming support for gender dysphoria. They air stuff every day. In August, transgender activist Eric Garland, or Elk, Ellie Ehrlich, well, I don't know where I got that name, was accused of sexually assaulting people. It, it, it's everything we cover. Here, here's an article from The Spectator. Some women have penises. If you won't sleep with them, you're a transphobe. Of course, you're a transform. That's that's always 
That's always the thing. This one's great, too. Grooming is another baseless right-wing conspiracy theory. If that's the case, then why can't you treat Christianity in school? Anybody? Anybody? I'm just asking for a friend. You say you can't do that. I, I just don't understand. And then you have this soundbite from Ben Shapiro. And this is how evil, evil these people are. And how much they truly believe. They are in charge and you have no say in your child's life. We reported last week over at Daily Wire that there is a group in Virginia that is essentially encouraging children to leave their homes and be rehoused with queer-friendly families, which sounds an awful lot like legal kidnapping since we are talking about minors here. Well, now we find out, according to Luke Rosiak reporting over at the Daily Wire, that a top leader in a National School Psychologist Association is participating in that group. Amy Canava, the chair of the National Association of School Psychologists, LGBTQI2S committee. Okay, I assume that that's LGBT queer intersex two sex. Done. Committee participated in discussions on the internal message board for the Pride Liberation Project. The group's resources for outed students section advised students who are facing familial rejection or need to leave their home for another reason to reach out to Amy, she, her. Immediately, they work with Safe Space Nova, are an adult, and can provide you with much more information. They are also confidential. Well, that's exciting stuff. I, I do love that that provision suggests students facing familial rejection can, can leave, but also if you need to leave your home for any other reason, so you had a fight with mom and dad for not that reason, we will rehome you with this family over here who is very much in favor of queer youth. And yeah, and that's not creepy and weird at all. Not, not, no, it's no perfectly normal. The section went on to say that PLP could rehome students who did not like their parents. So if you just don't like your parents, you just don't like mom, like a normal teenage person as well as pay them money and have an adult pick them up to take them to their new lives. Again, this is kidnapping. Like if I started a group today and it said, don't like your parents, we'll rehouse you with another adult and we'll, we'll pay for your freight. We'll pay your freight. We'll pay you money. Has nothing to do with LGBTQIA plus minus divided by sign ampersand tilde happy face emoji. Has nothing to do with any of that. It just has to do with you're in a fight with mom and dad. Here's a creepy adult over here and we will pay for an Uber to take you from your home to said creepy adult you don't know, and we will give you a cash stipend. In fact, we'll, you know, we'll just cut out the middleman. We'll actually have a van outside your house that says on it, free candy. And all you have to do is just leave your home and go right into the van that says free candy, and you will be brought to an adult who will have a different agenda for you. Is that, none of this is weird or strange at all. It's all, it's all good. It's like, quote, in the event of you needing to leave your home, we can provide you with emergency housing from a supportive, queer-friendly adult. Again, I don't. how do you even do legal licensing for this thing? How does the insurance work? It had a quote, we will work with other supportive adult organizations in the region to find you someone who can provide you a kind and affirming home. Again, that, that phraseology affirming home means that if you have a 15-year-old girl and she has rapid onset gender dysphoria, she's been watching TikTok too much, and she's like, I'm now a dude named James, then we will just uh, find you an adult who will, who will continue to lie to you and tell you that you are, in fact, a dude named James. PLP was the subject of glowing national media attention on September 27th when it claimed it got 12,000 students to walk out of class to protest draft guidance from Virginia's Department of Education that said schools should not hide a student's gender transition for parents and that schools should accommodate a student's gender transition but do so only with the permission of parents. That same day, NASP published a blog by Canava describing her efforts to undermine the state initiative, which she described as horrific, quote, this generation of youth is more politically informed and aware than I can wrap my head around. We hear this all the time. By the way, I've been hearing this 
my entire adult life, which now spans about 20 years here, I've been hearing for 20 years that the youth are just so informed. The youth are just so smart. Let me tell you something. The youth are morons. The youth are always morons. Just a general rule for life. Young people don't know things because they're young. Not because they won't grow to know things, but because they have very, very shallow life experiences. They've never paid taxes. They've never owned a home. They've never brought up a family. There's this notion that the youth shall lead us. I won't even let the youth in my house decide when they go to bed. So no, the youth shall not lead us. Quote, these kids know their basic human rights have been challenged by the State Department of Education. Yes, this is what 16-year-olds know. And even worse, the state has used fancy words, which make the policy reversal seem like it's in the best interest of all children and families. Yes, it's not in the best interest of children and families for them to be on the same page with regards to the lies of gender transitioning. They have to be on different pages, and we have to allow people to kidnap them. She demanded school districts shield staff members who ignore the guidance. Again, let, let me put it this way. Let's say that you had a 15-year-old girl. She's not trans. She just wants to leave to live with a 30-year-old boyfriend, right? I mean, obviously, if she has the mental capacity to transition into a boy, she has the mental capacity to decide with whom she has sex, no? So maybe we should have groups that sponsor, or maybe that's child abuse. Maybe that's child trafficking. She demanded that school districts shield staff members who ignore the guidance, asking administrators, how will you defend staff who continue to act in the best interest of students who are consistent with professional ethics, but now in violation of, again, in schools, you cannot give a minor an Advil without parental permission, but apparently can chop off their d It's an amazing, amazing thing. Panava, who works as a counselor at Wakefield High School in Arlington, told the Daily Wire school staff are not at liberty to speak to the press, but she has spoken out freely in other public fora. In a September 2020 podcast called Out, What Now? She said, quote, there comes a point, unfortunately, for many of these kids where they have to make a choice between their life and their family. It shouldn't be that way. But I want to see a kid in a home with food and shelter and insurance and support. I also don't want to lose kids to death. Right. This is always the lie. The lie is that if you in your home don't immediately start reflecting the insanities of radical gender ideology, your kid will kill themselves. Right? This is the lie they always tell. They always say, well, either you can have a live daughter or a dead son. These are your choices. Or maybe you could do watchful waiting. Maybe you could get the kids some actual therapy. Maybe you shouldn't mutilate the body of a minor based on a TikTok trend. Maybe that amazing stuff. If you just lie and you say that this is all in the interest of the children, then presumably you can have kids increasingly identifying as non-binary or gender transitional, radically escalating rates of depression and suicidal ideation among these youth. And this is good for them because if they weren't doing this, presumably they'd all be killing themselves, which, by the way, let's assume for a second that that were true. Let's assume that it was really societal suppression of transgender identity and non-gender binary identity. It was really societal suppression of that that leads to suicidal ideation rate. With increased ID, wouldn't you imagine that societal suicidal ideation rate would go down? Because again, right, that's the choice that's being presented. The choice statistically that is being presented is they're saying that if you do not allow your child to gender cross-identify, then this means your kid will kill themselves. Okay, but historically we didn't, right? Until like literally this moment in human history, we did not truck with any of this garbage. So wouldn't you assume that now as society becomes more tolerant and accepting of transgender identity and gender non-binary conformance or whatever, that, that suicidal ideation will go down, and yet we are seeing precisely the reverse. How odd, weird. I mean, again, if suppression causes suicidal ideation, and we've been suppressing for years and years and years, and now we're not suppressing, suicidal ideation should go down, societally speaking. It is not. It is skyrocketing. Almost as though what they are saying is complete garbage. In a July 2022 episode of the same podcast, this person says that, quote, I recognize parental consent is a big deal. When I'm doing anything LGBT, I don't worry about that. Let's be honest, it's an electronic permission slip. You type in a parent's name, and I'm like, oh, the parent signed consent. There's no actual signature. I do love my neuro and gender diverse kids. Those are like my favorite, she said. 
When it comes to her own sexuality, says this, says this professor, quote, she is pansexual, quote, I identify as queer, but I'm attracted to a very small but growing percentage of the population. And so more transmasculine, non-binary folks with an X who may or may not like women. I'm not kidding. It says folks with an X. When I'm dating more transmasculine people, one of the first things I ask, or even when I go out with them is, how out are you? And what are you out as? Which is the same thing I ask for my students. This seems like a very confusing life. Like, I don't even know what that description is of. I identify as queer, but I'm attracted to a very small but growing percentage of the population. Transmasculine, non-binary folks. So women who say that they are non-binary, but they act like men, and they may or may not like women. Man, this thing's a calculus problem at this point. Jordan Costin Sumter, executive director of Safe Space at Nova, told Daily Wire, quote, Safe Space Nova has no role in rehoming. This has been made clear to the PLP prior to now and reiterated again today. PLP is a student-run organization. It is separate from Space Safe Space Nova, though many of its youth participate in both. Amy is not affiliated with PLP. She has corrected some of the misinformation youth have shared on the Discord server when she has the opportunity to do so. But in the materials reviewed by the Daily Wire, which were on the private server of an ostensibly youth-led group, Canava's role is not limited to correcting misinformation. In one post, she said she was looking for kids, quote, 13 to 15. Minors must have parental consent. Looking to be interviewed on camera late next week about their experience as trans, gender nonconforming, gender fluid, non-binary, gender queer, et cetera, in schools. Interested? DM me. I love that she says minor must have parental consent, but she has said publicly the parental consent just amounts to basically faking it. You can sign yourself a note and she'll go along with it. Canava has provided LGBTQ training that psychologists can use to meet their training requirements in the National Association of School Psychologists. These are the people who are dealing with your kids at school. If that doesn't scare the living hell out of you, I don't know what would. Catherine Cowan, spokeswoman for NASP, said, quote, neither NASP nor Amy condone efforts to provide monetary or housing support to minors who are in safe home environments. Oh, we're in safe home environments, but we will define what safe constitutes, right? It's not safe if you believe in, you know, that, that weird book that is the foundation of Western civilization called the Bible. That's not a safe home environment. All right, guys, the rest of the show is continuing now. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll get into the Herschel Walker abortion story, how that's going to affect the Georgia race. We'll get into Rachel Maddow, who's sounding kind of insurrectiony these days. If you're not a member, click the link in the description and join us. We will rehome you. Now, we know states are doing it. I mean, it's a given. They're doing it. Because they think they have the right. We've heard too many cases of... Oh, come on, phone. I'm trying to look something up from next the next thing. Um, trying to, there's too many cases where... Parents have lost the right to have their children because they wouldn't chop their dick off and make it something else. I think it's the 14th. Let's make sure I'm right. Ah, God bless America. Broken phone is killing me. No. Yes, it's the 12th. 12th, 
We're going to have this epic that I've been waiting for. Candace Owens special taking down BLM. Black Lives Matter released their 990 IRS filings. They collected $80 million. Where is that money? It's not here. Everything looks worse than it was. Where have you seen that money impacted throughout the city? <laughs> so my producer just sent me a link. It is just shocking to me because of how much money was raised to think that where he lived, the bills weren't being covered. Super frustrating, but that's a dead end, so. And here's where it gets really interesting. Ready for some BLM pride? Another 200K went to escorts, BDSM workers, strippers, peep show workers, phone sex operators, and webcam performers. And then at that moment, it became personal. And I thought, not only am I going to say the truth, <laughs> I am going to scream the truth louder than you can scream the lies. It's incredible that the majority of the world hasn't seen this. Sorry, I didn't want to forget to play that soundbite, but that's going to be something really good to look for. But you think about abortions. Uh, I think I have a, this one. PolitiFact cracks pants on fire in Wisconsin when late-term abortions equal preemies. Because PolitiFact just, all they do is give Democrats what they fucking want. I mean, come on. That's what they do. <laughs> And when you look at the media, here are just this week alone three sound bites and listen to the stuff they say. Isn't it like violent rhetoric? I don't know. I thought we were told it's violent rhetoric. Yeah, he denies it. Uh, the Daily Beast hasn't printed her name. I find it interesting that no other media outlet will confirm the reporting either. So I, I don't know what the truth here is. I'll tell you how Republicans, a lot, at least a lot of Republicans, are analyzing the situation, though. And that is, it's in October. Uh, it seems to be a little nebulous what happened here. Uh, and, you know, it, it feels like a lot of, like an October surprise. And so you're going to see Republicans discounting it for that reason. And then there's the macro argument of, you know, at the end of the day, is Herschel Walker's candidacy perfect? No, neither is Raphael Warnock's. And there's a simple question, which is, who's going who's gonna to run the country? Is it going to be Democrats running the country in full, or are Republicans going to get a seat at the table by winning one or both chambers? And so, that issue may trump any personal trepidations they have about an individual candidate in Georgia or anywhere else for that matter. Scott, do you, I mean, this isn't the first time that Herschel Walker has said, so, well, let me, let me put it this way. Herschel Walker has a track record of not telling the truth about his past. He hasn't fully explained how many kids he had, he owned up to. He's talked about um, his college education, which turned out not to be true. He's talked about him having been involved in law enforcement, which turned out not to be true. I could go on. He has a long track record of saying untrue things. So you're saying that in this situation, you believe him? No, I'm saying I don't know what the truth is. I'm saying the Daily Beast has run a story which nobody else will confirm, including CNN, by the way. <laughs> And Herschel Walker says it's not true. I don't know what the truth is, but I will tell you this. There are a lot of Republicans out there saying in a worst case scenario, it is true. And Herschel Walker did pay for an abortion. And you know what? Raphael Warnock wants to pay for all of them and up to the moment of birth. And so 
You know, what? is this a perfect candidate? I don't candidate? think that's no, right, Scott. I don't think that, that Scott, that's just not true. Raphael Warnock want, has never want said Raphael he wants to pay for abortions up till the moment of birth. That's he has not voted. true, he has, Scott. He has absolutely, he has absolutely voted for unlimited abortion access. Full stop. That's a, that is a true statement. Hundred percent true. He did it earlier this year. Yeah, but the idea that there are abortions happening into the moment of birth is just not true, Scott. As you know, I mean that's just. That's that's I know, a, I know you and I have argued about this before, yes. but the bill that Schumer put on the floor this year, which Warnock voted for and all the Democrats, mm -hmm. except for a couple, voted for, absolutely had no limits on access to abortion. And so if you're that's the average pro-life Republican and you're looking at these two situations, that's I'm telling you, that's how you would analyze it. But that's different, Scott. That's fear mongering what you're describing. But I do want to move on. <laughs> I feel like some of us who are maybe a bit more cynical about it have kind of understood that the whole pro-life thing has never been real, right? It's really great branding, but it isn't real, right? It, it's just, they just want power and they would love to have women under control and they feel women right. are out of control. The problem is modernity, right? It's that modern women are harder to control. They go off and they get their little fancy college educations, then they want to compete with you in the workplace. They want to do the stuff men can do. They want to play sports like men. They all of a sudden don't want to be under control. And a teenager who's stuck at home raising a bunch of children she has no idea how to raise is actually really controllable. And I feel like we now can have an honest conversation now that Republicans are breathtakingly willing to have it, that that is what it is, is that modernity is what bothers them, not abortion. Matt Walsh just delivered the hottest Tinder profile in Gilead, <laughs> right? Like that's pretty much what he said. I'm just looking for just looking for a nice undereducated woman under the age of 18 to pop out my babies and listen to me talk about how smart I am. Look, we, we know that's what these guys are about. We know that's what the women who support them are about. The issue is how many people who will be under the thumb or the watchful eye of these kinds of politicians are willing to take the new survey out this morning shows the consequences of the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. The decision triggered laws in several states banning or restricting abortions. Our senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen, is with us. What do the numbers tell us, Elizabeth? John, what the numbers tell us is that it is difficult, actually impossible, for women in 14 states to get abortions in their states. Let's take a look at a map. In these 14 states, the Guttmacher Institute says... There are no abortion providers, none. These are states that have either banned or sort of nearly banned abortions. And in these 14 states, women can, there are no more clinics that offer abortions. Now, when we look, up, we look at it this way, look at it another way, in 2020, in those 14 states, more than 125,000 women got abortions. So that's the number. Per year, more than 125,000 women are seeking abortions in those states and they're not going to be able to get them. And John, that map doesn't even include states like Ohio or South Carolina or Indiana, where they do also have near total or total abortion bans, but the courts have stepped in, but it's temporary. The courts could step back out and those bans would be back on there. John? Interesting to see how quickly. But we had, did have one successful thing. And that successful thing was that Vanderbilt was forced to stop doing child sex changes. So as we go out and into our military corner, here is Matt Walsh talking to all the detractors that said he's a bad person because he saved some kids. They are the fascists they're screaming about. So here's my official answer. 
for the record. Um, kiss my ass. I do not apologize. In fact, by all rights, you sick freaks should be the ones apologizing to me for lying and defaming me and doing it all because I'm trying to prevent you from sexually mutilating children. You damned monsters. You child abusing psychopaths. I wouldn't apologize to you soulless parasites if I had a gun to my head. Instead, I'd rather just tell you all to piss off. I apologize for nothing. I concede nothing. I will never surrender even a single inch of ground to a pitchfork mob of degenerate morons. You know, the secret they never say out loud is that nobody is truly canceled unless they consent to it and they willingly play their assigned roles. Well, I do not consent. And I'm not going to play the game. I'm not going anywhere. you are about to see something the public has never seen before. One of the most famous battles in U.S. history 20 years ago today. It came to be known as Black Hawk Down. U.S. Special Forces had gone into Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia, to hunt gangs affiliated with Al-Qaeda who were preventing food from getting to starving Somalis. In the bloody fight that broke out, a Black Hawk helicopter was shot down and 18 Americans were killed some of their bodies dragged through the streets. Lara Logan recently went to the site for 60 Minutes, and tonight she has the pictures few even knew existed. Norm Houghton was a team leader on the assault force that day, and in 20 years, he's never spoken publicly about the battle because his unit is so secretive. Even after all this time, we were asked not to use its name. 60 Minutes was able to obtain this surveillance video of the battle, which has not been seen publicly until now. Here you can see the very beginning of the mission. Hooten was flown in on one of these Little Bird helicopters to the target building, which was quickly enveloped in clouds of dust. How well did you and your men execute that main, the main objective of the mission? It was flawless. From the time we set down to the time we called for uh, the, the helicopters to come back and get us, I would say it was no more than five minutes and it was over. So you thought you were going back, it was yeah. done? Yes. 
and the helicopters were on their way back to the target to pick us up. We had uh, everybody that we've been trying to get for months was in one package, in one mission. Then, from this rooftop, with his men under fire, Hooten watched as the lead Blackhawk Super 6-1 headed towards him. And it took a, a direct hit to the, to the tail boom and started a slow rotation. How hard did it hit? It was a catastrophic impact. That's the only way I could describe it. This is Super 6-1 moments after it was hit by a rocket-propelled grenade, spinning out of control before it's torn apart on impact. And Lara's complete report on the 20th anniversary of Black Hawk Down can be seen this Sunday on 60 Minutes. This bridge in Iraq was actually known to many Americans, made infamous at the end of March in 2004. Shakir al-Muhammadi, a local journalist, was at the cafeteria when he heard the gunfire. I ran to see what was happening, he recalls. The gunmen had fled, but an angry mob gathered. Four Blackwater operatives had been ambushed and gunned down in their cars. An enraged and frenzied crowd torched the vehicles and the corpses. That's when Shakir says he realized that Fallujah was lost. And Iraq's darkest days were just starting. The bodies had also been viciously ripped apart and residents were telling us that they were finding parts strewn throughout the entire city. There was a foot that was hanging off of an electricity pole. Two of the corpses were then dragged down the road around the corner there and strung from a bridge. Bashir Mutar witnessed what happened next. I was parked off to the side, he says. It was terrifying. One of the guys pulled down some wire. They used that, he recalls. I remember there was a leg hanging off one side and half a corpse from the other. There wasn't a head. We knew the Americans wouldn't stay quiet about this. From that day on, Fallujah became synonymous with Al-Qaeda. The Fallujah 2004 offensive to wrest the city from the grips of a terror organization was the largest and bloodiest battle of the war. Relentless American bombing, street to street, house to house fighting. Today, the seemingly unremarkable bridge is open to traffic again. Next to it, just one of the many buildings bombed by the U.S. forces. Both a painful reminder of all the city has endured. Even though residents believe Al-Qaeda will never take their city over again, its long shadow still darkens the countryside. This is why people are still so afraid. This house belonged to a policeman and it was targeted, we're being told, by Al-Qaeda just a few weeks ago. This is the crater that was left by the bombing. And he wasn't here at the time. The attack happened at 3 o'clock in the morning while he was on duty. But his family was sleeping right here. We can still see the blankets, some of their mattresses that they were sleeping on, other personal belongings, children's notebooks. Najim Abdullah paid dearly, considered a traitor in Al-Qaeda's eyes, intent on sending a clear message. Death awaits those who betray them. He lost his wife mother-in-law, two daughters, and his youngest, his four-year-old son. The message is getting through to everyone. Some of the policemen who escorted us here hide their faces out of fear. No one 
wants to pay this price. They're using the mosque to do command and control for insurgents and kill my my fellow Marines and fellow soldiers and airmen that are out here. I mean, all all no holds barred. All all the gloves are off. I mean. This thing will become uh, something of the past, something we'll never forget, but it will become something of the past. That's some pretty sad shit. This is, uh, of course, aligned with the anniversaries of Black Hawk Down and uh, the terrible killing of those contractors in Fallujah. It's uh, really kind of kind of jacked the hell up. Uh, there's no way to really say about it. It is completely jacked up and... Uh, had some sad times. With the Black Hawk Down, just watched the movie the other day. I uh, had a first song that was in charge of me, and he was a high-speed mofo. So this is a picture of the new Scout Invictus helicopter. It's amazing how fancy these helicopters are getting. One um, I've been trying to cover forever, a drone, a big, light drone, flew for a world record um, length of time, like nine months. It was solar-powered. And it wouldn't crash, but it finally did crash. Here's a new Bell and Howe. Man, that is a good-looking ride. Um, this is the 280. Yeah, the 280 Valor Tilt Rotor. It. I cannot find out what they're picking. It's between this and the double rotor one I show all the time. Another one is, uh, just for the gear, it's like doing a front, the Valkyrie unmanned aircraft, a flight speed of 1,050 this is the next drone. 
And, uh, yeah, it'll have bombs and fucking everything. That's pretty fucking high tech. The uh, Spec Op Command is going to be adopting the L3 Harris Sky War, uh, Warden. And this airplane, very interesting. On day four of Operation Anaconda, we were told to move to LZ-13. And then they brought in forces and then retook the valley. And a light prop aircraft was dropping bombs. I saw it. And I don't even know what the hell it was. But it was like, wow, dude. That's pretty cool. And then yesterday, I, uh, the day before yesterday, I went to my walk and there was like a hundred of these and they must have been doing some kind of testing on them. And it is the JTV, JLTV. Yeah, JLTV from Oshkosh. So I got a video on it, and it, you know, it was a good-looking ride, I got to admit.
you know, it was a medium platform. Um, I don't have any more slides, but let's go back to the sexy. That's just sexy right there. Um, had a little MRAP look to it because it had the undercarriage that was sloped. So, I mean, it was it was actually pretty sexy. I, I, I thought it was fantastic. So let me get back to where the hell we are. All right, here we go. Boom, boom, boom. All right. The uh, U.S. Special Operations, the Ghost Rider gunship, uh, AC-130, they're going to equip that motherfucker with lasers. God help you, little fucking ragheads. You're not going to like that one. Army Blackhawk spotted with new sensor. They now have a new sensor under the nose. It looks like a flur, but what it's done, finally, after 20 years of fighting the desert, is to look through the fucking dust so they can land. What a fucking ingenious. I don't know why it took us this long. Air assault mission? Don't go to Pathfinder School and have to remember a billion numbers. No, here's an app for it. Yeah, fuck you. Fuck, I know every generation goes, these pussy soldiers, they ain't got it as hard as I got it. Yeah, well, motherfuck. I still had to do math. 20% of USA, USAF's B-2 forces deployed down under. That's pretty interesting. This, I don't just don't believe. The Army is officially adopting a guaranteed hit smart scope. I can't get the picture of it, but it looks kind of like a red dot on top, and I don't fucking think there's ever going to be a... You can still fuck it up, but shooting. And the worst piece of military gear ever issued. And I'm going to scroll through this. Uh, okay. Knee pads. Those are fucking horrible. Yeah. Long johns. Garbage. You had to go buy your own shit. The dick flap groin protector for the IBA, and I would not wear it. We had them, but I didn't. Mucklucks. Somebody said VB boots. Go suck a fat dick. Those are great, man. They saved my ass so many fucking times. Just so many times. Um, I thought those were good things. So those are just some of the high t- highlights. Um, let's get into our articles. If I can get to the front. Thanks to leftist corruption, U.S. military recruiting is in a total free fall. They're having a hard time. They've tried everything. It's just collapsing. Uh, and we've re- reduced our end strength to 0.2% which is uh, a little more than 2.1 million, but you just can't fill the fucking ranks. The army is screwed up. National Guardsmen went weeks without paying because of a system glitch. Well, that could be a problem while you're not getting it. I'm just throwing it out there. Could be me. Gotta pay a motherfucker. I mean, what the fuck, man? Um, citing recruiting arm, the army will shed up to 28,000 troops in 2023, that they won't be able to replace. Just won't be to be able to replace. But a lot of it has to do with the woke shit. And the people are just out of just out of shape. The army plans a prep course to help people get in PT because they don't do PT anymore. They're trying to change new MOSs and be more tech savvy, even some spec force new MOSs to bring people in. Here's another reason. In prison or the defect, complain about their base food. And I'm not even going to read the article because you've heard me bitch about it a million times. There is just crappy fucking food. 
They're even doing Army staffers are testing digital PCS. You work from home and you come and just do your qualifications for staffers. Yeah, you're not a Fortune 5 humbly. Get your fucking ass in there. It's called camaraderie. Jesus Christ. Here's an article on maybe why we have it. All right, I'm going to read their reasons. It's what I just said. Woke, crappy fucking quarters, crappy food. A military at war with Americans. Why fight for a social order that thinks law-abiding, church-going place pale-faced right-wingers are the problem with America? That's the American conservative. That's another reason. A lot of people go, well, wait a minute. If I go to the Army, everything I believe is wrong. Or you could go with, it's official. The military will rename bases that honor Confederates. Goodbye, Bragg. Hello, Fort Liberty. And I'm not going to read them again. Because I read them. But maybe that's why you have a recruiting problem. Maybe because you have no more esprit de corps and all you guys talk about is pronouns, how you can make transgenders become Delta Force. I'm telling you, it's a Spartan environment. We want cavemen. You're asking people to do things that is not normal. It's not normal to run towards people as they're shooting at you. It's not normal just to stay in one place and let yourself get mortared for six fucking hours. That's what I did. It's not normal to fight for others and not yourself. That's the whole job. So there's a quick military corner. I'm doing freedom tunes today, thanks to Matt in Oregon. He always sends them to me. So here's some freedom tunes. One's... uh, uh, Stacey Abrams, Tucker, and another one for our lighter fare. No, you can't get an ultrasound. I want to hear my baby's heartbeat. No, that sound is manufactured to let white men control your body. Oh, please. Yes, yes. Lay right there. Baby has heartbeat. You may now control my body. You monster. Your husband called. He wants you to quit being a CEO and make him a sandwich! Of course, Doctor. Now say Stacy Abrams isn't the governor of Georgia. Stacy Abrams isn't the governor of Georgia. Dozens of innocent school board members are exposed to pornographic materials. Right-wing domestic terrorists are showing these public servants the kinds of obscene images that only eight-year-olds should be forced to see. He printed out the images we showed the children and made us look at them. It, it was so 
disgusting. No one who isn't a grade schooler should be exposed to this kind of content. These images truly are extremely disturbing. I have to blindfold myself before showing them to my kindergarten class. I was absolutely horrified when I found out that the weird porn I draw was making its way into the hands of adults. What I create is strictly rated 18 and under. What I saw, it still haunts my nightmares. Who was there to protect me? A lot of people have been criticizing me over parents being exposed to my work. But my question is, where are their children? Isn't it their responsibility to supervise the kinds of images their parents are looking at? Where are the children? They them are legally not allowed to know where the children are. Public schools, so good, beautiful, and noble, that showing the public what we teach is an unforgivable crime. Learn more at protectingpervsfromparents.com. So most of the time I use our This Is America to put out some heinous or some, maybe even a replay of what I did, which I did last week with the our last podcast with the Over the Top. But this one's pretty apropos. If you think back to 2012, there was a thing called DACA. And they were really worried they were going to lose. So, you know, by, you know, Obama did a bunch of illegal shit that we don't call illegal. And we ignored Benghazi. And we did all sorts of crazy shit. But we passed DACA, which is totally fucking illegal. And now it's 2022. And guess what? It's fucking illegal. It's time for the worst soundbite. When the liberal media is pushing one of them agenda story and says, This is America. 2021. Also, federal appeals court has agreed that the DACA immigration policy is illegal, will allow it to continue for now. The judges sent the case back to a lower court to review a new set of Biden administration rules on the program. It protects immigrants brought to the U.S. as children from being deported. President Biden said the new ruling means that the lives of dreamers remain in limbo. Just took fucking 10 years. But that was a pander. Just like his college payoffs going to be illegal. Everything he does is illegal, but they get away with it because the media think it's cool to have a pen in it. I got my Blackberry in my pen. I can do what the fuck I want. But it's election time. That's what they do. Right now, you'll see all sorts of stupid fucking shit. He's even saying that he's going to release more of the petroleum because he knows that he's hooked. It's all about crime and the economy, and all they're talking about is pronouns and identity politics. And how it's so important. You know, the guy is just incapable of telling the truth. He's a Puerto Rican. He was black. He grew up in a fucking Cuban area. Um, he went to uh, this week and, and talked to people who just lost everything and talk about a house fire. He goes to veterans and says, well, my son died and he was a soldier. What the fuck? What does that got to do with what you're talking about? You can't even pander good. That's the thing that kills me about this guy. He's not even a good panitor because he's such a fucking liar. Just a fucking liar. So, this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please share this with family and friends. Go to foppodcast.com. Sign this video and audio and all video and audio. Leave a comment. Say hey. 
cover this. Or you suck. Or eat a bag of dicks. Send me that email. I don't care. It's all good. Tomorrow is my 55th fucking birthday, so I pushed it forward to today. So our next show, we'll go with a hump day. Hump day, hump day. 12 October, year of our Lord, 2022 will be our next podcast. Until then, disconnect from all your devices. Don't give yeah yeahs. I'm not going to close this show with a big old rant like I usually do because you get it. That's why you're listening to the show. You just get it. We are a clusterfuck. We are in a bad way. And we need serious people. So I wanted to leave with this one analogy. I, for the first time, emailed a politician and asked him to run for president. And that was DeSantis. DeSantis just gets it. This week, I was going to rip through and get a soundbite. But he literally says stuff you and I say. But he says it in a way that's not Trumpy. He doesn't tweet all day. And he gets it. You get Tim Scott and him. You have people that know how to make the sausage and they're serious people. The reality is these are serious times. We need serious politicians. We don't need far lefties on a green energy platform when we don't have the technology. We don't need a president that doesn't even know what day it is and his wife is in charge of our country. And we don't need some minority just because they're the right skin color. We need serious people. It's getting serious, folks. The debt we owe, him running around saying Armageddon, we're not doing this, we're fighting a proxy war, sending millions to another country and blowing up their fucking pipelines. I mean, for fuck's sake, if you really believe Putin blew up his own shit when that's what's financing his war, you really need to fucking go get your head cleaned out and stop listening to CNN and MSNBC. We did that shit. They said they were going to do it. That's not being Putin's butt, buddy. You said you were going to stop the pipeline. It stopped. That's war shit, man. And then you go in front of the American people and basically say, hey, we're about to have Armageddon, motherfuckers. Either it's a way for him to say he averted Armageddon and try to be like JFK, or he's just a fucking dumbass. Those are things you just don't say. $290 million of fucking radiation poisoning was bought by the government, and it leaked out. So, are we really going to start lobbing nukes for Ukraine? What the fuck does he have on you, Biden? That's scary, boys and girls. I haven't done ducking cover since I was a little kid. I haven't thought about a nuclear war since the day after. So we probably need to get a really serious person in there and divert stupid. And that's on us. We just got to, like, I'm working on my wife. She's never voted. I am begging her just to go vote. Every vote counts. We need to win back these things. We, as the American people, not a party, because I ain't a Republican, we need to win it back and divert stupid because they're just going into green energy and we'll all be sitting here in the cold. I mean, I didn't even play. I forgot. Let me play this because this... Sums it up. So you can see as much water as they've done. So both engines are empty, right? 750 gallons for right. each engine. Right. So, so they're both empty. So we've already put on 1,500 gallons of water on this and it's still going. So oh, and this will burn for days. dangerous these fires are, right? And why now we've set up. So we've got a, a, a water supply here. No, we do. So now they'll be able to, right over there. So now we'll have a good water supply that'll be going on and they're just going to continue to do what they can to drown this vehicle. 
Boys and girls, that's an electric car just catching on fire by itself because it got wet. And these are the same people that are saying we're all going to be underwater. So I'm assuming if I'm going to be underwater really soon because all the ice is melting and we're going to be dead in 12 years, why do I want a car that's going to catch the fuck on fire? They're doing dozens a day. That's not some. That, that's just off the internet, folks. Media ain't talking about it. So not only will I not be able to charge that when it gets wet, it's just going to catch the fuck on fire. Good times. So, yeah, serious times. Let, let's get serious people and let's stop playing fuck, fuck, goose. So until the next show, you guys take care. Thanks for listening. Later.